What's going on, everyone? Welcome into the newest episode of Going Long. I'm your host, Zach Neal. On today's podcast, we are going to recap Oregon's trip down to the desert. They went 1-1 one one against Arizona and Arizona State. Somewhat encouraging weekend of basketball. Uh, we're going to get into that, touch on some of the biggest takeaways, and preview a little bit of the homestand they got coming up against the L.A. schools, both USC and UCLA coming to Matthew Nate Arena this week. After that, we're going to go over some of the roster needs for Oregon, uh, Oregon's football team ahead of spring practice coming up in the next month or so. Uh, with the, the transfer portal closing and recruiting now behind us, it, it gives us a little bit of a dead time in the sport to actually assess what's going on and, and kind of look forward into what, what the Ducks still need going forward. So after that, we're going to get into our first ever Skowing Long mailbag. I got some really good questions from you guys about some current and former Ducks some storylines for the offseason that we need to touch on, some recruiting stuff, some really good stuff from all you guys. That's what's on tap. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. It is Sunday afternoon at about 2.15 right now. Uh, let's start with some basketball. This was a, a relatively encouraging weekend for the Ducks. Um, I know I've been up and down on this team a lot over the past few weeks with what I think is pretty good reason. Uh, they went down. They had a really tough road trip in the desert this weekend. They played uh, number 5 Arizona on Thursday night. They played Arizona State on Saturday night. They ended up going one and one on that road trip, which I think if you if you went into this road trip and said that you were going to come out splitting it, I think that most fans would be pretty encouraged. They'd, I think you'd take that. On Thursday night, Oregon had a tough loss, ninety-one to seventy-six to Arizona. Like I said, number five team in the nation. I don't think it was that bad of a loss. I mean, I don't think Oregon played that badly. Uh, if you watch the game, I mean, Oregon shot forty-one percent. Um, they got 22 points on seven of 10 shooting from Will Richardson. I, they played decently well. I mean, this was by no means the worst game we've seen from Oregon this year. I mean, they, they cut the, they cut Arizona's lead close a few times in the second half and they made it somewhat interesting of the game. It wasn't like they were ever going to really come back and win this game. I don't think they ever got really too close, but they kept us interested and they kept us entertained. And, you know, sometimes with what we've seen from this Oregon team, that's kind of all you can ask, especially when going up against such a good team in Arizona. And, uh, while the offense has really been one of the main issues all season, I mean, I've said before, this is one of the worst shooting teams I've seen in Oregon in a long time. The offense was alright against Arizona, it was just the defense that was such a big problem. I mean, Azulas Tubelas had 40 points on 21 shots, I mean, it was a career game for him, and I think, you know, he's in line to be one of the player of the year candidates in college basketball this year, and this, this one goes on his highlight reel. I mean, if he's making a case to be that player of the year, this one goes right up there with some of his best games not only of the year, but of his career. I think he was 16 for 21 shooting. Like I said, 40 points. I forget how many rebounds he had, but he just had an incredible game, and the Ducks had had no way to stop him. It was just one of those games. You see him going off like that, and you see the things that he's able to do, and you see that Oregon just doesn't really have a chance to stop him. At that point, it's kind of like, all right, let's just... 
let's just hope that, I mean, he's going to get his points. Let's just hope that nobody else around him can play well. And, you know, Arizona is not a team that you can hope that for and, and have it come to fruition. They, they played a great game. They played, they're a great team. I mean, Tommy Lloyd's got that team rolling. They're, they're a surefire, probably a one or two seed in the NCAA tournament. So all in all, that loss didn't really trouble me too much. You kind of went into that game thinking this is, this is most likely going to be a loss. But what impressed me the most was that Oregon was able to bounce back on Saturday night against Arizona State, and they got a really good win. I mean, the last time Oregon played Arizona State was in Eugene at Matt Knight, and I'm pretty sure that was a 17-point Sun Devil victory. Yeah, it was. I think 17 was the number. It was, regardless of what the final score was, it was a blowout. I mean, it was one of those that... Uh, it was just, just really, really one of the low points of the season. Not because Arizona State's a bad team, but just because it was a lackluster loss and something where, you know, you just didn't really see much energy or much effort from the Ducks. And, you know, that would, that kind of brought one of the more confounding moments of the season because you had that loss against Arizona State. Then two games later, Oregon beat Arizona, the number five team in the nation. They beat them by 19 at, at home. So, um, I wasn't really sure what to expect going against this Arizona State team because, yes, they're a solid team, but when they played Oregon earlier, they also shot the lights out, and they couldn't miss. So it was one of those games where, you know, kind of like Oregon had against Arizona this past weekend, where it's just, yeah, you kind of got to chalk out the loss and just, you know, while we thought the effort would have been better and we hoped it would have been better, it was one of those where, you know, even on one of Oregon's best nights, it would have been tough to win, but... Saturday night, I think that the Ducks really, really performed well, and they showed something. We saw Dana Altman get a lineup switch. Uh, he started Keyshawn Bartholomew over Rivaldo Soares. Um, I was, I really liked this lineup. So the starting five was Will Richardson, Keyshawn Bartholomew, Jermaine Cousinard, uh, Nathan Biddle, and Infali Dante. In my opinion, that's that's the lineup that Oregon should be going with going forward. I really think that Dana found something there. Uh, Keyshawn is really coming into his own in Eugene. I think it's about time he finally got in the starting lineup. He's just, he's too good of a ball handler and he's too good of a shooter to be coming off the bench when those are two things that Oregon desperately, desperately needs this season. I mean, I, I said it earlier in the podcast, this is one of the worst shooting teams I've seen in Oregon in a long time. And it's really not a very good ball handling team either. We've seen them be flustered and flummoxed by full court presses all season long and you know why teams don't just throw the press at Oregon every game is kind of beyond me I mean we've seen it give them trouble almost every time it comes up uh Arizona State did a little bit of that in this game and this I mean this was an incredibly sloppy game that I think Oregon had 17 turnovers it turned out that pressure once again was their kryptonite but uh, when you've when you've got that going on, the ability to throw Keyshawn in there and to throw Jermaine in there with Will Richardson and get just a couple more ball handlers, it's huge and it really settles down the offense. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me, Kalel Ware was the first player off the bench. Uh, I think that that you know if he's playing up to his level that we know he's capable of, I think that's the right the right role for him. I mean, he used to be, I believe he started a, several games earlier in the year, but. Um, you know, we've we've had our ups and downs with him. He was benched against Utah, didn't play any. He played a little bit against Arizona. I forget his his minutes, but um, it was I was really curious going into this road trip to see how much of a factor he was. And you know, he played 13 minutes in this game. I, I was kind of surprised that he played only 13 minutes. He played nine minutes in the first half, 
and only got four minutes in the second half, which I wasn't really paying attention to his second half play. I kind of think that I saw him play so much in the first half that, you know, a lot of the time I just, I guess, assumed that he was out there on the court in the second half. And then I looked at the box score after and only 13 minutes, seven rebounds. I believe he was 0 for 3 shooting from the floor. He was, it was impressive because, you know, take away the stats. Don't look at the stat sheet. If you just watched him play, you saw a little bit of energy there. You saw a little bit of, you know, excuse me, but give a shit meter. You know, he was crashing boards. He was, you know, boxing out. He was playing solid defense. And, you know, we didn't have, I don't, I forget how many blocks he had. I don't know if he had any, but he altered a lot of shots. I mean, he's so long. And just having him in the paint and getting his arms up, that I don't care if he blocks a shot, he's going to alter a lot. He's going to change a lot around the rim. So I was impressed to see what he did. I know it wasn't a huge game on the box score. His offense still needs a lot of work. I mean, he's someone that, with that length, if you just put, I know you can't really get this this season, but if you just put another 10 pounds of muscle on him and let him just go up strong to the rim instead of trying to you know, do all these post moves and trying to get fancy with his footwork and everything, just go up strong with the ball, I think he'd be so much more effective than he is. And um, I, that's why I think that he's got a really bright future ahead of him once he kind of grows up and develops a little bit more and fills out his body. But I think we're kind of just seeing the beginning stages of that in Eugene this year. But I was really impressed with what I saw from him on Saturday night because, you know, this freshman kid whose build is, you know, one of the top players in the nation and a, a surefire lottery pick in next year's NBA draft. You know, he he's really faced some tough times and seen his minutes get cut. And it would have been pretty easy for him to, you know, kind of soak at the end of the bench like we talked about last episode. But I didn't see that this game. I thought that he really came out and he, he gave a really solid effort. And um, I'm impressed by what he did. And I hope that um, what Dana is able to get out of him going forward is, you know, we see more of a ceiling from him and he becomes more of an impact player. One interesting thing to note was that Luke Ward did not play in this game. I was kind of surprised to see that because, you know, I highlighted him a lot on last podcast, and I know that he'd kind of been the talk of the town, at least in media circles, since Oregon's last few games because, you know, his plus 14 plus minus with zero points and his kind of nose-to-the-grindstone type play and his, his real hustle play, uh, it was impressive and it was really encouraging, but... Um, I thought going forward he was going to have more of a role. I was surprised not to see him in this game because I thought it was, you know, it was really a gritty game between Oregon and Arizona State. And I think that, uh, you know, I think he really could have helped that style of game as well. I was just kind of shocked to see him get zero minutes. I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see how much he is in the rotation going forward because I think he's a really solid player. And I think that he brings the type of mentality and energy that this team really needs. Someone who really did step up was Infali Dante in this game. He had a huge, a huge second half in particular. I mean, he finished the game with 18 points, 7 for 11 from the floor. He was just really a big, big presence in the paint. And, uh, Arizona State really didn't have much of an answer for him. It was it was funny that the Ducks kind of just kept going inside to him, and, and Dante was getting whatever he wanted, but... Um, it was, it was just a really good scoring game for the Ducks. I know 75 points, you know, that's kind of Oregon's average, maybe a little bit above average, but, uh, you got some really good scoring from the guards. You got Will Richardson and, and Keyshawn Barthelme playing really well. Um, and this just, I think my overall takeaway from the game is this just really shows that 
if this team gets it going and if they kind of show up on the same night together and you get Will playing well, you get Keyshawn playing well. Jermaine Kusnar didn't play great last, last night, but uh, I mean, that's, you know, he's a really good player. I think that there's, this was kind of an anomaly game for him, but you get one of your big men playing well. You get Dante playing well. Biddle was kind of off last night, too, where you talked about Ware not having any points, but this team still has a really nice ceiling if they can put it together that way. We've seen a lot of cases where they don't put it together. But, you know, we've seen a few, a few cases like this where they, they look pretty good. And I know this was an an ugly, turnover-filled game. And, and I know that a lot of people, you know, saw the downside of this game. I think that, you know, either of these teams, if they get into the NCAA tournament, they're going to get bounced in the first round. But I don't know. I, I see a couple of scrappy teams. And, and talking about Oregon specifically, I just, I, I think that the ceiling is still there. Uh, it's just going to be all about consistency. Um, you know, I, I keep saying it. We, we've got USC coming on Thursday. You got number nine UCLA coming on Saturday. I go into this weekend of games thinking and saying the same exact thing I went into last weekend saying, I mean, I don't feel like we learned anything new about this team because I'm still so unsure about what they can do going forward. I feel, feel confident that if they play well, they can absolutely win because this team's so talented and they can play with the best of them if they show up, but you just never know if they're going to show up. So I feel like I'm saying it once again, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see which team shows up and which Dana Altman we see on the sideline. Is he going to be stomping Dana, who's, you know, slamming his fist down on the scorer's table, or is he going to be, you know, clapping and encouraging uh, based on what he sees from his players? So... I don't know. I, I just continue to be really confused by this team. But this past weekend, it gave me a little bit of hope because, you know, if if you were to ask me to predict what we saw in this weekend's games, I would have said, yeah, probably one and one. I think you probably lose to Arizona because they're a really good team. But Arizona State's a team you can beat, and Oregon played well enough to beat them. So um, I'm at least encouraged by that, maybe by the fact that I knew what I was talking about more than just, you know, sitting here and looking stupid like I have so many times when trying to predict what this team does this year. All right, let's take a quick break and come back with some football talk and look at remaining roster needs ahead for spring football. These next couple of weeks are a little bit rare in the world of college football right now. They're they seem to be as close to an off season as we will get all year, or at least until the summer months, you know, June, July, months like that. With the recruiting cycle now over, with the transfer portal window closed for the time being, I mean, players can still announce if they're transferring somewhere, but if you're not in the transfer portal right now, you cannot enter it until May 1st through May 15th. Uh, these next few weeks, we're kind of just sitting around and waiting for spring football to ramp up. Uh, I believe that'll happen sometime in the middle of March. Uh, for me, this this offers a perfect time for us to sit back and kind of look at the roster and dissect it a little bit. And and for me, I want to look at look at remaining team needs and kind of look at position group by position group and see what's there, what's left, and how Oregon can continue to improve before spring ball and before ultimately before fall camp starts. I released a complete deep dive on this on Duckswire uh, Monday morning where I go by position by position and kind of break down who's there and, and who's left, who I think might leave, and, and where Oregon can continue to get better. I'm not going to get into every position group and every player and all that stuff. If you want a full dive, go to duckswire.usatoday.com. I just want to get to some of the main points. 
by my count right now, there are 90 scholarship players. Um, 85, like I've said before, is the max. Again, as I've said before, I am absolutely not concerned about this number. Anyone who is worried about Oregon having too many scholarships on the books right now, just, you know, take a chill pill. It's spring football. None of this matters until fall camp. And there are more transfers to come. Everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. So 90 players right now. In my mind, there are two positions on the team where I could definitely see some additions going forward, where I think that Oregon still needs to get better. The first one is at tight end. At the moment, you've got Terrence Ferguson, Patrick Herbert, and true freshman Kenyon Sadiq. Um, it would have been a little bit better if Nicholas Harbour, five-star commit, committed on signing day instead of going to South Carolina. Um, I'm getting some really interesting, you know, news about Harbor of these past couple days. I'm going to, before I get it to you guys, I'm going to try and look to confirm it. But, you know, there's some interesting stories about what took place the night before his commitment and uh, shoot the hour before his commitment and, and who he told what and, and what kind of went down with all of this. So at this point, I've only heard it from one person and I want to, I want to get it more confirmed before I bring it to you guys. But it's safe to say this recruitment was a little bit strange and abnormal. And, um, I wouldn't blame a lot of Oregon staffers if they felt a little bit frustrated with how things played out. Um, but back to the tight end group, there's still, you know, there's still a chance that Oregon adds someone in the 2023 recruiting cycle. Five-star tight end Deuce Robinson is still on the board. He notably did not commit anywhere on signing day. He was projected to go to either Georgia or USC, but he is still weighing his MLB baseball draft prospects. Um, some people think that he could be a first or second rounder in the MLB draft this offseason, so um, he's kind of deciding what he wants to do, and he's someone who flirted with maybe p- taking a visit to Oregon uh before signing day. That did never happen, but I know that Oregon's still still reaching out to him and trying to, you know, see if they can sneak into his recruitment late. Um, if they go that route, that'd be an awesome addition to the tight end room, another five-star player. Um, it's, a, it's still a true freshman, so I'm not sure, you know, how comfortable you feel uh, shoring up that position that's already pretty slim on depth. Um, with a with an unproven player like Deuce, but you know he's a if he wants to come to Oregon, you absolutely don't say no. Uh, if if that doesn't happen, I think the transfer portal is the absolutely most likely option. Like I said, only three players right now, and the three players doesn't worry me for production. I mean, you look at the talent on that roster: Terrence Ferguson, outstanding player. Patrick Herbert, I think, really has shown some bright spots, especially near the end of last year. I think that. Uh, if he's given a bigger role in the offense, I think he can be really, really productive and a really good player. And then you guys have heard me talk about Kenyon Sadiq before. I mean, I'm, I can't wait to see this kid play. His high school game tape is really, really incredible. It's just having three players on the depth chart. The only thing that that worries me about is injury. I mean, tight end's a very physical position, and if you get one of those guys hurt or two of those guys hurt, you get in a really, really tough position because, you know, there's not many guys to turn to, and I think that you need at least four, preferably even five tight ends going into the year just to feel confident and comfortable that, you know, you can withstand some bumps and bruises and still be okay going forward with your depth. At the moment, there are not that many options in the transfer portal. If you look at the portal... um, there's just really, it's kind of slim pickings everywhere in every position, which that's kind of the way it goes right now because you had the window close. 
And people are kind of, you know, they're waiting for spring football to see where things bounce and see where they stand on the roster. And then after that window opens up again, May 1st to May 15th, I think you're going to see a lot more players enter the portal. And that's when Oregon, I think, is probably going to pounce on one of these these transfer tight ends and try and add some depth to that roster. Again, I don't think that they're lacking in talent or production right now. I just want another, you know, maybe a veteran piece, someone who was like your Cam McCormick or, or like your Maliki Madaval, someone who may not be your leading tight end, your leading receiver, but someone who's going to give you some really nice blocking help, someone who's going to give you some depth and some comfortability if, if uh, injuries come up. Another position where I think Oregon could add some depth and probably a little bit of playmaking as well is at linebacker. I mean, right now, according to my calculations, you only have seven linebackers on the roster. That's Jeffrey Bossa, Keith Brown, Justin Jacobs, Connor Soule, Devin Jackson, Harrison Taggart, and Jerry Mixon. Uh, two of those we know what we're getting from in Bossa and Brown. I mean, they're both really, really good players, good returners and contributors from last year. Two of those are redshirt freshmen, two of them are transfers, and one of them's a true freshman as well. So uh, while we can have high hopes for, you know, your Justin Jacobs and your Devin Jackson and Harrison Taggart, I I don't know if we're completely confident that they're going to be, you know, starting level players this next year. That that may seem like a lot to ask. I'm, I'm most confident in Justin Jacobs right now because he, you know, was a former Big Ten linebacker at Iowa. He's a physical player who's done the job before. But he's also coming off of a, a pretty serious knee injury, and we know we don't know for sure that he's going to be ready to play by you know at least spring camp, and maybe maybe not even by fall camp either. So I think that Oregon probably is still going to be a little bit active in the linebacker transfer portal as well, because you know you can at least add some depth there, and you can add another starter or another playmaker, another really good rotational player there as well. I mean, I looked at the transfer portal earlier today. You've got. LSU's Antoine Sampa. You've got Notre Dame's Osita Equanu. It's a little bit of slim pickings right now, but like I said with the tight end group as well, you're going to get this May transfer portal window. You're going to see more players enter the transfer portal and become available. I think Oregon really, really looks hard, probably at this position as well, to try and add some, add some talent, maybe add a little bit of depth, and add a couple of players that they really feel comfortable having on the depth chart there. There are a couple of other places that could use an addition or two. I'm not going to get into all of them. If you want to read the full breakdown, you can do that on ducksfire.usatoday.com. Before we take a quick break and get into the mailbag, I wanted to touch on a cool story. Maybe that's uh, it's a cooler story for me than for the audience, but this is something that you know really hits home for me for a couple of reasons. Ground recently broke on the Jake, which is a multi-million dollar golf facility out at Emerald Valley Golf Course for the Ducks. If you know me well, you know how much I love and am obsessed with the game of golf. If you know me well, you also know that, you know, in the football offseason, I work out in the pro shop at Emerald Valley a couple days a week. So, uh, like, like I said, this story definitely hits home for me in a couple of different ways. Uh, if you don't know what the Jake is, it is a 6,000 square foot practice facility. It has a heated driving range and indoor putting facility. Uh, it is expected to be done. They're expected to finish up this project somewhere this fall. I've been told around September or October is the uh, the goal right now. Uh, it took a little bit longer to get the groundbreaking on this than we we thought. It was announced the plans for this, I believe, 
almost a year ago. I think it was early, early last spring. And they thought that they were going to break ground in May and it was going to be done before the end of the year last year. And it just broke ground, I believe, this last week is when they finally got it started. So if you want to learn more about that, I've got another really good article on Duxwire. But uh, just the the renderings of this and, you know, the blueprints and everything, it looks like another classic, you know, Hatfield-Dallin-esque state-of-the-art facility. And it's just, it's really awesome for Oregon's golf program because, you know, you speak of championships at Oregon and you always think of track and you, you think of, you know, that's kind of the crown jewel, but Oregon golf has really kind of flown under the radar over the past decade. I mean, several years ago, you had Aaron Wise, a current PGA player. You had Solmon Raza winning that championship at Eugene country club. That was an amazing, amazing time. I mean, uh, Solmon, I actually kind of, I went to high school with him and the first ever, the first ever profile piece I wrote in my, my journalism career was working for the Axe South Eugene High School and it was a profile on Solmon Raza. So, uh, I know him well and to watch him sink that championship winning putt a few years ago was awesome. And then you had the women's, the women's team, uh, getting second in the, in the nation last year behind Stanford. So, it's about time that they get, you know, this quality facility and something that's really up to the standards because this is a really, really incredible team, a couple incredible teams, I should say, and they get high-end recruits too, and they compete for championships, and they're they're really good, and so this puts them up there with, you know, the best facilities in the nation, and I can't wait to see it be built. Um, I think it's going to be really cool once it's up, and it's going to be a fun progress to watch go up. Let's take one last break and then answer some mailbag questions before we get you out of here. All right, welcome to the Skowing Long Mailbag. I'm excited about this. We got some really good questions. If you want to submit a question to me, you can send me a DM on Twitter or you can email it to me at ZacharyNeal4 at gmail.com. It can be about the Ducks, it can be about sports in general, it can be about whatever you want, to be honest. I'm just I'm just happy to get your questions. Let's start out with this one. This one's going to be pretty fun. What do you make of the whole Dylan Brooks situation with Donovan Mitchell, and how should Oregon fans view his career at this point? Um, I'm going to choose my words wisely here. Is anyone surprised? I... You see Dylan Brooks do stuff in the NBA, and he's kind of just turned into I don't I don't want to mean this as degrading. I don't want to mean it as demeaning, but he's kind of turned into a, a dirtyish player. I mean, he's and it's it's just it's not that surprising to me anymore because we saw this in college. We saw his kind of he had a little bit of antics when he was at Oregon. I remember well the time that he flopped incredibly badly while just kind of running backwards through the paint and you know, was quickly turned into an internet meme. And then you see his last second shot against Duke in the tournament where, you know, in the the high fives after the game, Coach K is pulling him aside and and kind of scolding him a little bit and telling him, hey, that's, you know, that's kind of against the the sportsmanship nature of the sport and you shouldn't do that. And I don't know, his his antics have definitely continued into the NBA. And um, while it's interesting, I don't, I don't really know what to think about it. I just, I was kind of asking myself this question earlier. What would you think of Dylan Brooks if he was a Washington Husky or if he was a USC Trojan? Would he not be your least favorite player in the NBA? He kind of reminds me of a Draymond Green in a way where, you know, if he's on your team, you love him and you, you absolutely want him next to you going into battle every night. But 
you know, if he's not, he's he's one of your your most hated players ever. So, um, I I defend Dylan Brooks. I enjoy him. I appreciate the content that he brings, especially at Duckswire. Um, but I I also understand everyone's outrage, and he ended up getting suspended for a game because of that uh below the belt shot to Donovan Mitchell the other night, which I think is fair. I think a one game suspension is about right. If it was more than that, I think it might be a little bit too much. Less than that, I think you're not really you're not really not really punishing him enough. So um I understand it, but I uh I don't really think that he should change too much because this is kind of working for him. I mean, most good teams need this type of goon-style player in the hockey sense. You know, someone that you go out and you get into fights and you get get their player to, to get into the other team's head and get them riled up and get them off their game. So, And that's what Dylan Brooks has turned into. And he's he got Donovan Mitchell ejected from that game. And he was ejected too, but, you know, the Cavs losing Donovan Mitchell was more important than the Grizzlies losing Dylan Brooks. So... Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to see how his career has turned out. Um, I've enjoyed watching it because it's always entertaining and always been fun, but I don't know. I think that he's going to need to be a little bit more careful going forward because he's quickly, you know, the, there's a big outcrying against him as of late. And I think that that's going to continue if he's, if he continues with these antics. All right, this next question is from Jake. What do you make of Ty Thompson not entering the transfer portal once the offseason started, and how do you see his future playing out at Oregon? Do you think he can or will be the starting quarterback for the Ducks in 2024? This is an interesting question, and I think probably one of the more important questions that we've, or important important developments that we've seen at Oregon this offseason. Uh, I talked about it with Jared Mack and Jared Denny uh, probably a few weeks ago on an episode. I think this is among the most important storylines that Oregon's had all offseason. I, for one, absolutely thought that Ty Thompson was going to enter the portal as soon as it opened back in December. Um, and I'm I'm surprised and, you know, really encouraged that he did not. Uh, he's Ty Thompson's career has been frustrating both from a fan perspective and from a media perspective because... At one point, I understand why fans are frustrated and and kind of feel like he's underperformed because he was billed as the next great Oregon quarterback. I mean, when he came to Oregon, he was the highest-rated quarterback to ever sign with the Ducks. And, you know, in the wake of guys like Marcus Mariota and Justin Herbert, we really thought that he was going to be the next guy to to step up and lead Oregon to potentially college football playoffs or Rose Bowls, something like that. So... Um, to watch him, you know, sit on the bench the past couple of years, and when he did get in the game, really not perform to the expectations of a lot of fans. I know that's frustrating, but then you look at it from another side and a more objective side, and you see when he gets in the games, it's not been always advantageous to him. I mean, he's not had other starters around him. It's often been late in games. It's been in moments where they're trying to run out clock and they're really not working with the full playbook. And he has not been set up to succeed 
Um, so it's it's been kind of frustrating to see so many fans turn against him really quickly and say that, you know, they want him to transfer. They don't want him in the program because, you know, I think he's a lot better than what we've seen from him. We just haven't seen him in the right situations, which kind of leads me to my point that I think it's really important that he's still on this roster and that he's in this world of the transfer portal where it would have been so easy for him to pick up and leave and find another school where he could be the instant starter and he could kind of learn on the job and kind of jump in the deep end and get his feet wet. I think it's really important that he's chose to so far stick in Eugene and not transfer and develop behind good coaching and other good quarterbacks like Bo Nix. He had a year with Kenny Dillingham. I think that's really, really important. I think that, you know, it, all of us say he could end up transferring after spring ball. Who knows? He could, yeah. As soon as that portal opens, he could jump in the portal. I, it would surprise me at this point because I think he's had ample opportunity to move and he would have missed a window if he waited that long to move. But um, in my opinion, I think he's around for the long haul. And at this point, I th- it's going to be between him or Austin Novosat, the true freshman, for that 2024 QB1 job in Oregon. And, you know, I, I think that the odds on favor, if you picked those two, would be Thompson because he has two years in the system. He knows this offense. He knows the coaching staff. He knows Eugene. While Austin Novosad, probably going to be a great quarterback, going to be a great kid, you know, I think that Thompson has, has really bided his time well. And, you know, at this point, I think I hope that he's rewarded for that. I think that it, like I said, it would have been so easy for him to pick up and leave and find an easier situation, but he kind of stuck it out. And I don't think you see that very much in college football anymore. And uh, I just, I hope that he's rewarded for that because I want, I want other people to follow in his footsteps. I don't want that part of the sport to die, that development part of the sport. You know, I don't want this to be a, a world of of pickup basketball. And if you don't get on the on the court, you go to another court and and find other teammates to play with. I want this to be where you go to a team and you you work for your starting spot. If you don't get it, you work to get better and you develop. I think that Thompson's trying to do that, and I, I just really hope that I hope that it works out for him because I think that would be really important if it did. All right, this one is from Kelly. Are the Ducks set at tight end, or do they add one via the portal or position reclassification? I touched on this a little bit earlier in the positional needs. I think they definitely need to add another one, uh, likely via the transfer portal. Like I said, maybe via the recruiting cycle with Deuce Robinson. That feels kind of like a long shot at this point. But, you know, in the recruiting world, you never rule anything out. The interesting thing to note would be the position reclassification. I know that the guys on Austin Audible's Jared Mack, Eric Scopel, Matt Preem, they talked about this a little bit. That would be interesting because, you know, we have seen players that play defense, uh, particularly the edge rusher defensive end. They kind of, they switch positions sometimes. I wouldn't say often, but, you know, that's not rare for them to do. We saw DJ Johnson, who came as a defensive end. He played a year at tight end. This last year, we saw Terrell Tillman, who played defensive end. He played a year at tight end. He didn't really get on the field much at all because there was some really good depth at Oregon. But, you know, there is precedent for defenders to play on offense, usually defensive end to tight end, like I said, if there's that need for depth, if you need bodies. But when looking at Oregon's roster, there's not that many options for people that I think kind of fit that mold, you know. 
You've got guys like Mateo Uyunglele, who was a four-star recruit this past year. He played defensive end, comes to Oregon as defensive end, but played tight end in high school, was actually a really good tight end, and was kind of considered an athlete in his recruitment because he plays both so well. But, you know, by all accounts, he's coming to Oregon to play defensive end, so I think it'd be kind of a, a bit of a surprise to see him go to the offense, you know, his first year in the league. You've also got someone like Anthony Jones, who was a defensive end that was a true freshman last year. He also played tight end. Uh, he was an athlete in high school, played tight end, was a pretty good pass catcher. Um, he's someone he's he's lower on the depth chart for defensive end, but, you know, he's, he's also young. He's making his way up. So if you were going to look at some people that could maybe flip-flop, I would take those two. Maybe true freshman Teatum Tuioti, a three-star edge rusher from Sheldon High School. I know that he's mainly a defensive end, but also played some tight end at Sheldon this past year. But I, I don't know. I just don't really see many people on this roster that would make that flip. I mean, no to Jordan Birch, no to Mace Funa. You got, there's just not many guys. I think the Ducks are pretty set on that defensive line and at that edge position particularly. I just think that it'd be, it would make more sense for them to go to the transfer portal route to try and get a depth piece at tight end, leave what you've got on defense and just try and, try and go the other way and just, just get someone to come in and, and just get someone that could play tight end specifically and, and not have to take from your defensive line. All right, this last one is from Cameron. What steps can Dan Lanning take to elevate the Ducks from having a top 10 recruiting class to having a top 5 class? Is there anything he can do beyond simply winning? You know, I think the the easiest answer in the end is that, one, he needs more time. I think that to have a top 10 recruiting class in his first full year, his first full cycle in Eugene, is incredibly impressive. Uh, I don't think that that should be looked over the... The fact that he was able to turn last year's Oregon class from, you know, when Mario Cristobal left, that was ranked down in the 80s nationwide, and he turned that into the number 13 class in the nation, and then he came in and got this to the number 8 class in the nation, and I, I spoke a lot last week that it, it could have been a lot better if you get even one or two more of these five stars that really flirted with the Ducks. If, if they ended up signing, it would have been better, so I think Oregon's really trending in the right direction. I wouldn't be surprised if... You know, maybe not this year, but next year, a couple years from now, you get some, you know, top five classes. I think that you're going to get more five stars that see what Lanning is building in Eugene. And you see that, you know, a lot of people want to come to Oregon and they want to they wanna join in on what the Ducks are building. And obviously, the number one thing is winning. I mean, if Oregon's making it to college football playoffs, if they're winning Rose Bowls, if they're winning these games against the best competition in the nation, people are going to want to join that. So um, that's easily the number one answer, that if you want to get the top recruiting classes, you got to win. I mean, look at Georgia, look at Alabama, look at Ohio State. Year after year, they're in the top five. And you know why? Because they win year after year. I mean, Alabama didn't make the college football playoff this year for the first time in a while, and I think it's just pretty rare that they didn't make it, but then they turn back around and they've got the number one recruiting class by a mile in 2023. So I think once you kind of build that track record and you can really just prove that, you know, you're not only a good recruiting team, but you're able to develop these players and you're able to, to make it make it count on the field and win these games and actually get some accolades under your belt. I think that's going to come. I think those top five classes are going to come. And, 
you know, if we learned anything from Dan Lanning this last year, it's that he absolutely knows how to recruit and he knows how to build these relationships with with top rated players and and kind of get in their ear and get them at least interested in coming to Oregon. You know, he wasn't able to seal the deal with several of these players, but I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, it's you know you got to start somewhere, and at some point they're gonna they're gonna turn a lot of no's into yeses, and uh, I think it's definitely gonna come. All right, that's going to do it for us. Once again, thank you for those who sent in mailbag questions. If you want to get in on the action, shoot me a DM or an email. I think we will try to do a mailbag probably once a month or so, depending on how many questions we end up getting. The plan going forward is kind of up in the air right now. I don't think I will have another episode until next Monday. I've got a guest coming on for that one. I'm actually really excited about it. I know all of you will be as as well when you hear who it is. And we're recording that podcast on Friday, so... I may put that out on Friday. Um, I may save it for the weekend um, and go on Monday. I'm still a little bit undecided on that. So there's still a lot of moving pieces over here with the podcast. So I may be coming back later in the week with some news and to preview the USC and UCLA games. I'm not quite sure yet, but I'm just trying to keep you on your toes. Thank you guys for listening and following along. If you want to check out more of my work, you can find it all at www.duckswire.usatoday.com or at Zachary C. Neal on Twitter. We will talk to you guys next week. Until then, take it easy.